This podcast is brought to you by the Kansas Hospital Association. Hello there, and welcome to Plain Spoken, a podcast produced by the Kansas Hospital Association. I am Shannon Flock with the KHA, and I will be your host for today's episode. I am honored to be hosting today's discussion around the topic of insurance denials of medical necessary care in the hospital. And I am pleased to have joining me for today's commentary, three individuals. Dr. Brendan Rice, who is a family physician, but also serves as the medical director for Ascension Via Christi in Wichita. Ron Campbell, who serves as the director of the clinic revenue cycle at Stormont Vale Health in Topeka, Kansas and Deanne Tanking, who serves as the case manager and swing bed coordinator for community healthcare systems in Onega, Kansas. Welcome today to our discussion, and we are grateful that you can be here. Claiming the inability to demonstrate medical necessity is the most common rationale commercial health insurance payers use to deny care. In recent years, a shift of the decision-making for medical care of a patient has moved to the insurance payer versus the bedside physician. Ron, to start us off with today's discussion, can you start by explaining the difference between the outpatient admission and an inpatient admission, and how do the insurance payers play into making that decision? Sure, absolutely. So, The idea here originally was to try to separate out into different levels hospital stays, one that was maybe more serious and one that was maybe less so instead of them all being lumped together into one single kind of stay. An observation stay is generally one that intended to be where the patient was only in the hospital for maybe a day, day and a half or something like that versus an inpatient admission where it was going to be much more serious and much longer. Now, this sounds really good from an insurance company's perspective, obviously, looking at their bottom line, but it isn't nearly that easy for hospitals to make that determination when you're following the insurance company's rules, because we don't have a crystal ball that we can look at to know absolutely, well, how is this going to turn out? When someone's admitted, you're making decisions based on the best information you have at that point, but there are so many factors that can influence the final outcome that it really puts hospitals at, at risk for admitting someone as an outpatient observation status when they really end, ending up shouldn't have, should have been a, an inpatient status. So it's following those rules with the insurance companies gets to be very difficult because you're, you're trying to look into that crystal ball into the future to know exactly how this is going to come out for each patient. Thanks, Ron, for that explanation. To follow up that question, would there or could there be a difference in the amount of -of out-of-pocket expense that patients may have to pay, depending if the hospitalization was determined to be an outpatient versus an inpatient admission? Yeah, there is. So there'll there'll be a difference. A lot of that is going to be, well, it's going to depend on the specifics of the patient's policy. Um, So the real savings are always going to come down, in most cases, to the insurance company side. But let's Let's take a look at an example, and I think we can illustrate where that, where that comes into play. Let's say I'm a patient, and I have a $3,000 deductible. And remember, anything that, that is paid above that $3,000 is going to be paid by my insurance company. So if I have a $3,000 deductible, and I come in for an inpatient admission or a hospital observation stay with some maybe imaging and testing to go along with that, 
I'm probably going to meet my $3,000 maximum out of pocket pretty quickly. Either way, it's really not going to matter which one of those two stays I'm in. So if I'm in an observation state and it ends up being relatively short, I pay the same $3,000 and the insurance company you know, does okay on that. But if I end up in an inpatient admission, I still pay the same $3,000, but the amount that the insurance company is paying is obviously going to be dramatically more. So there's a real financial incentive to try to make sure that I'm admitted as an observation stay because that's going to dramatically reduce the amount of company that the insurance company is most likely going to have to pay. In some instances, it can certainly save the patient some money too, but in most cases, it's the, the majority of the savings are going to, going to accrue to the insurance company. Dr. Rice, as a board licensed physician, I would guess that you have spent 12 plus years training for your professional career. Can you describe the conflict that is created when an insurance payer tends to override the medical necessary decisions physicians are making at the bedside? Well, thank you for having me. Um, it certainly can lead to a feeling of conflict. Um, physicians spend a great deal of time training and learning about how to take care of patients and improve their lives. What I think many physicians are not prepared for is the reality of the insurance world that we live in, where decisions can be made that don't really make medical sense to a physician at the bedside or are applied using hindsight after a thorough workup and treatment plan has been conducted. When a busy physician is taking care of patients and feels as though a patient is sick enough to need to be admitted to the hospital, it's really frustrating and often demoralizing to hear from an insurance company that the care they're providing is something that could be provided at a lower level of care. These decisions are always made by other providers who are not at the bedside actually taking care of the patient. When supposedly objective measures, such as the two major guidelines, for what can be considered an inpatient stay versus an observation one do not make any particular medical sense and are used in ways in which they're not intended, it further leads to frustration and often a desire to give up arguing. So I'd say that there really is a great deal of conflict and animosity sometimes between bedside physicians and the insurance industry in this regard. Dr. Rice, we mentioned insurer decisions to place a patient in observation versus inpatient status is one override insurance payers make over bedside physicians. What are the top three pain points around hospital denials and prior authorizations at your hospital? I'd say one is that often insurance companies will deny a patient's inpatient stay because the patient recovered too quickly. Uh, that is, the physician may have done an exceptional job improving or saving the life of his or her patient, even ICU care, just to find out that because they did such a good job, they're only going to be reimbursed at the observation level of care. The insurance companies often will say that they do not use time as a guideline, but we have seen countless examples of how level of care provided meets the guidelines officially, but the patient went home after a day or two, so only observation reimbursement will be provided. Second, I'd say each insurance company gets to decide what is considered inpatient or observation, especially as it pertains to procedures. Whether one agrees with or disagrees with the Medicare inpatient only list as it pertains to procedures, it at least is a comprehensive list of which procedures CMS will pay for at an inpatient level. 
the other insurers, most notably Medicaid, which of course is another government program, use completely different lists, meaning that a physician really does not know which procedures are considered inpatient ones. These also change year to year and do not necessarily make any medical sense or have anything to do with the length of stay that the patient uh, really is in the hospital. This again puts the physician at the bedside in conflict with the insurance company. And third, I'd say the entire process around arguing for an inpatient stay, that is the peer-to-peer process, is cumbersome and heavily weighed in favor of the insurance company. A physician will have to be available during certain times to take a call from an insurance medical director. One of the insurance companies, in fact, requires that the physician himself or herself makes the phone call to set up the peer-to-peer discussion. Again, the medical director is not someone who is at the bedside and may be a completely different specialty from the physician who's taking care of the patient and is the expert in their care. These often can become argumentative and not based in what makes sense medically. If the physician is unable to take the call and misses the deadline to call back, which sometimes is only a couple days, the hospital automatically loses that round of appeals. Conversely, multiple times the medical directors will not be able to call back when the appointment was made, but this certainly does not result in an automatic favorable decision for the hospital. To be fair, there certainly are some very reasonable medical directors who simply need to hear more about a case, but overall the system is essentially set up to be adversarial. Deanne, you've been a nurse for many years in Kansas hospitals, and through those years, you have seen the evolution of insurance payers overriding the medical decisions of the providers. Can you describe and give a few examples of how those denials and delays by the insurance payers have impacted patient care? Often denials are given after the patient has already been discharged from the hospital. The reason given by the insurance company for the denial are not very reasonable or specific and are not in the best interest of our patients. This causes financial burden among patients and the hospital, and it also causes frustration among providers and increased workload to staff trying to appeal or another word, fight the denial. Delayed responses to authorizations has also become a big problem um, from insurance companies. They delay the care and cause a bottleneck to the hospital system when trying to get a patient transferred to swing bed. Many a times it can take several days to receive an approval for skilled care, which means that the patient is taking up an acute bed in a larger facility when they could be transferred to a lower level skilled bed. So let's go ahead and stay on the subject of patient care and patient safety in our discussion. Dr. Rice, over the past few COVID years, we know that your hospital was at full capacity for extended periods of time. Can you describe, as you were trying to transition patients out of your hospital, the frustrations your physicians and staff experienced working through insurance payers' decisions? Absolutely. COVID certainly brought a huge number of challenges, to say the least. When the hospital was at capacity, which honestly it often still is today due to staffing and the various waves of COVID, every available bed becomes extremely important because when the hospital is full, a large number of patients have to remain in the emergency department for multiple days awaiting a bed. Also, as a physician who works in a rural hospital as well, it means that patients who are more sick than the hospital is generally able to manage cannot be transferred due to lack of availability at the larger hospitals. So when trying to set up post-acute placements for patients, 
it becomes extremely important to do this in a rapid fashion. We have numerous examples of receiving very little assistance or multiple denials from insurance companies, meaning that patients had to remain in the hospital longer than they truly need to be in that level of care. Again, this sets up an adversarial system when the physician at the bedside believes that a patient needs to be in a certain level of care, but the insurance company will not approve the post-acute care. This leads to more delays and a further lack of turnover of beds. I really want to emphasize what the downstream effect of having major hospitals in the state full is. Hospitals in rural areas who do not have ICU trained staff or may not even have a ventilator are suddenly faced with having to keep patients that need to be transferred to a higher level of care. During the height of COVID, we had to transfer patients to other states due to the lack of availability within Kansas, which certainly was terrible for family members, especially. Again, this just points out the need to be able to dismiss patients to the level of care that they need as quickly as possible, which often hinges on decisions made by the insurance companies. And Dr. Rice, how often do you believe patient safety is jeopardized because of insurance denials and delays? Well, we have numerous examples where, as I mentioned earlier, patients will be denied the level of care that the treating physician believes is necessary in favor of what seems to be cost-saving measures. Often patients will end up going home when the physicians feel like they were not quite stable enough to do so, but were denied a post-acute level of care. Very often these patients will end up coming right back to the hospital and needing to be admitted once again for the same condition, which then can result in a readmission denial by the insurance companies. Deanne, one thing that tends to happen when the insurance payers make the decision on the care of the patient is unreasonable options for treatments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we recently had an elderly patient who had an infection that failed outpatient treatment and required several days of IV antibiotics. The IV antibiotics were prescribed every 12 hours. The last few days of the patient's inpatient stay was denied related to the insurance company stating that the patient could have received the IV antibiotics on an outpatient basis. Our hospital is in a rural area, which meant that this particular patient would have to drive 40 miles one way to receive each dose of IV antibiotics as an outpatient. This would have totaled to be 160 miles per day, plus have a driver as well. This decision was not reasonable for several reasons. It would have been very physically taxing for this patient and would not have aided in the healing process and was also very difficult financially for the patient with all the increased gas prices, finding a driver, et cetera. Ron, Deanne provided a great example of a patient that was refused the proper treatment in what seems to be a way for the insurance company to save themselves money. The insurance payers argue that these necessary decisions are needed to lower the cost of health care in America. In your analysis, does this lower the cost of health care? You know, that's an interesting question. The problem with the idea that these policies lower the cost of health care is that insurance companies want to pretend that these decisions happen in a vacuum and that there's no consequences to the decisions that are made or the discussions that go on. If you have a patient, for example, who needs imaging and their insurance plan demands that they drive 60 miles to the nearest imaging center that their insurance company will cover, well, that's a huge consequence to the patient. Did it end up saving anybody any money after the patient has to drive 
an hour away to go get their MRI done. I, that's really debatable at that point. You know, the doctor's office, in many cases, ends up advocating for the patient to try to get them to the imaging center or the provider or the hospital that they think is the best for the patient. And the cost of fighting these prior authorization battles cost healthcare providers and hospitals billions of dollars each year in terms of staffing and denied claims. So yeah, on one hand, it certainly lowers the cost of care that the insurance company paid on that one visit, some of which might be passed on to lower premiums to patients, certainly after the insurance companies take their cut of the profit out of that. But on the other hand, hospitals and providers now have less resources left to take care of the patients in their community. So they're either forced to drive up their prices to make those funds back up that they're having to spend on the cost of prior authorizations, or they have to cut back on healthcare services that they can no longer offer to their communities. Neither of those do they want to do, but this idea that you can have all of these prior authorization discussions and prior authorization rules and to only look at it from the side of, look at the money we saved by stopping this one test or by directing the patient to a lower cost provider, that ignores an enormously important component of everything else that's going on. It's looking at a fraction of the picture rather than looking at all of the picture, which is, is misleading at the, at the least. Dr. Rice, how do you believe this issue can be addressed or in short, what may be a solution? I believe this can be compared to how paying for preventative services and education might be more expensive initially, but can save huge amounts of money and more importantly, improve lives in the long run. I think it's very short-sighted to try to save a little bit of money by denying necessary care in the short term. For example, if the patient is having to travel long distances, they often will simply stop doing so, which can certainly lead to morbidity and mortality that could otherwise have been avoided. While the insurance companies may be correct that this might lower the cost of healthcare in America this year, having this as a policy certainly may have grave outcomes in the future. In terms of a solution, obviously there's no simple answer, but having a mindset of prevention and actually having partnership between the insurance companies and healthcare providers would be a fantastic start. To wrap up our topic discussion for the day, Ron, what advice do you give patients evaluating insurance coverage before they make their decision? Gosh, I think I'd have to make sure to advise everybody. First and foremost, make sure you understand what you're purchasing. You know, this is one of those things you sometimes you get what you pay for. Um, really look at whether or not it's not just a question of is the plan inexpensive on a monthly basis in terms of your premiums. But what are you getting for that plan? You know, is my doctor or my hospital in network? You know, if I have a relationship with my healthcare provider, I want to know that my doctor is going to be in network. And if I sign up for a plan and that plan isn't participating, the out-of-pocket expenses to me can be enormous to try to stay with that provider or that hospital. I think number two, I'd, I'd want to be sure that what, am I, what are my total expenses going to be with the plan? You know, we all kind of focus in naturally. I think it's normal. We all focus in on that idea of, well, what's my monthly premium going to be? Make sure you kind of look at the big picture. What is, uh, what's the network that they've got? Am I going to have a lot of providers that I go to? What's my maximum out-of-pocket going to be? You know, I may have something that has a really low monthly premium, but the deductible is enormous. And, you know, 
if I'm 25 years old and I'm in really good health, that might be something that I would want to weigh in, you know, and consider as opposed to if I'm 55 years old and I'm in okay health, then I may have a very different approach to a plan with a large out-of-pocket deductible. So you want to look at that. You want to make sure of what are the rules going to be associated with that? You know, generally speaking, something that's a heavily managed plan, it may require me to do something, you know, like we talked about earlier, I might possibly have to drive out of town to have any ser services done that are outside of just normal primary care. If I want to have surgery done or imaging done or something like that, the nearest place I can go to might have to be somewhere that's a, you know, one, two, three or four hour drive outside of my home location. So you want to look at the complete picture of what you're signing up for before you do so. But uh, there's a lot to consider in these things. Just look past, look past, you know, just that monthly premium and make sure that you're getting something that actually is going to, is going to take care of all of your healthcare needs. Look at those companies that you're uh, possibly looking at. If you're out on the healthcare exchanges doing something like that, weigh the companies that you're looking at. You know, there may be a company that you're really familiar with. They've got a good long history in the area. You go look at the network that they've got, and that's a good-looking network. Okay, that, that might be worth a little bit more in monthly premiums than somebody who's brand new to the area. You've never heard of them. And when you, when you get to looking at, is my doctor in network? Well, there's not a lot of information there, and, and you kind of have some concerns. Look at that big picture when you're doing it and make sure you understand everything that you're buying, not just the monthly premium that you're starting off with. I want to thank our three speakers today on our Plain Spoken podcast hosted by the Kansas Hospital Association. It has truly been a pleasure to speak to you all today about a very important issue that affects patient care on a daily basis. So to end, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us on today's episode and we will see you next time on Plain Spoken. For more information on Kansas health issues, go to kha-net.org.